Uh, good morning and uh, welcome to, to the Sunday School Plus. Uh, we continue with our series on uh, scatology. And uh, today, we, today, today I have an awful responsibility of dealing with the subject of hell or eternal punishment. Um, I suppose why there are so few people today because uh, people don't want to hear anything about uh, hell. Anyway, um, those who are joining us online, uh, it's a joy to have the privilege of uh, uh, bringing the Word of God to you even when it is such an awful subject. I shall turn to the Lord in prayer, then uh, we will go dive into the scriptures. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise your name this morning. You are God who is infinitely holy. You are your, uh, your eyes would not behold evil, as Habakkuk said. Thank you, Lord, that uh, you are our God. And you've redeemed us from our sins and caused us to be born again to the living hope by your Son, Jesus Christ. Meanwhile, Lord, we, uh, we pray that you may brighten uh, our blessed hope as we wait for the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for what you've enabled us to cover so far. And now we pray that as we think about uh, the eternal punishment on the weekend, this will uh, animate our faith that we would be uh, better Christians and we would be apt to snatch others from the flames of the uh, flames of fire through the proclamation of the gospel thank you dear lord for you are so gracious and good to us do hear us for we pray and ask these things in amen uh, i request that we turn to mark chapter 9 uh, mark 9 um, i'd like us to read verse 42 through 50 uh, Mark 9, 42, 50, although I'm interested in only one verse, uh, verse 48. You know that uh, when you are reading uh, the scriptures on a particular subject you want to know, you go to that particular text that deals with the, the subject in question. If you look at verse 48, it tells us something about, the Lord tells us specifically something about hell. So let's, let's, let's read that. Whoever causes one of the little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your heart causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet be drawn into hell. And if your high causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if, if the salt has lost its saltness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So, the Lord does speak about uh, hell about three times. And uh, in two of the verses, verse 43 and 48, he has a description of what hell is looks like he says here that it is a place of unquenchable fire verse 43 um and some some bibles here have uh, additional content uh, between verse 43 and 45 there is a verse there, which is basically a repetition of verse 48, 
which ants, where their worm does not, and the fire is quenched. Uh, if you look at uh, that text on ESV, there is 47 and then 48. Uh, so 40, uh, 47, uh, excuse me, 40, you have 45, 47, so 46 is missing, and that missing verse, as it were, is um, the same repetition, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Um, that is if you're using ESV. If you're using some of other versions, like authorized version, uh, those verses would be there. So the question is, why are they not there? Now, the KJV only people would tell you because people don't want to hear anything about hell. Now, I don't agree with that because uh, ESV uses an older manuscript, uh, older than what uh, is used, what was used to translate King James Version, um, even though it's a modern translation. So, in a sense, that, that is immaterial because eventually that verse is captured there in verse 48. What's the point? The point is that God has appointed a place of eternal punishment called hell. It's a place of eternal punishment. Uh, it's a place of eternal conscience punishment for all unbelievers. And I'm going to, uh, to labor here to show you that this is a place, this, uh, there, there is biblical basis for our understanding of what hell is, and that uh, anything less than hell, like universalism, which is everyone will be saved, that Christ Jesus came to save everyone, or that he died for everyone. There are people who teach that. And that's not a teaching of the Bible. Or what is called annihilationism, where they, there are people who teach that, you know, there would be eternal judgment, which we considered last Sunday. And then after that, the weekend will be cast into hell and they will be punished and be destroyed and cease to exist after some period which is not determined. But they say that the, the, the constituent composition of these individuals who would be cast into hell would be, uh, would be completely exhausted so that there would be nothing remaining. I'll explain to you that as we move on. Now, the, the word translated hell is Gina, which is used to denote the final place of punishment, and it's usually translated hell. That word uh, comes from a Greek expression, gi and hinom, meaning the valley of hinom. This particular valley was was situated outside the, the, the city gates to the south of Jerusalem. And this is where they dumped their trash. This was their Dodora. This is where they used to take all their trash. And those of you who have been uh, to any dumping site, you always would see smoke going up, isn't it? Uh, so in the same way, this place of uh, this dumping site outside of Jerusalem to the south uh, was a place like that where the refuse of the city was burned. It was ever burning because of the refuse that were, that were there. And obviously because of the refuse, there were worms. Oh, uh -oh worms like this kind of a place because of helping in decomposition. So that's a picture that the Lord paints here, where worms do not die, and the fire is not quenched. Verse 48. 
um, Jeremiah has rightly said, this is, uh, there's a man called uh, J. Jeremiah. Uh, he said, this valley became a type of sin and a woe, and thus the word Gehenna came to be used as a designation <coughs> for the eschatological fire of hell and for the place of final punishment. Okay, so Gehenna, uh, initially meaning the valley of Haino, is the picture that was painted for people to understand what hell would look like. So this is a place of pillows of smoke and, and, and darkness, as we will see later. Now I need to remind you of the word that we learned when you are considering intermediate state, a death and intermediate state in the second lesson. Uh, there was a word I brought to your attention in Greek called, uh, the word is Hades, which refers to the place of punishment in the intermediate state. This is where the rich man, you know, that, that story there in, um, in Luke 16 from verse 19. Look at Luke 16 verse 23. That word Hades is where the rich man was taken. And we're told that he was there in, in the torment uh, where he saw Lazarus on the, other, on the other side in paradise or in, uh, on, on Abraham's bosom. Um, so this place, this place that we are talking about is not a temporary place like Hades. This is a permanent place of eternal punishment. So we're going to ask three questions in trying to understand what hell is about. First of all, what is the biblical basis for hell? And then uh, I will take you to various passages in scripture. Um, I'll take you to Matthew and to... Revelation, perhaps a few other passages. So what, what's a biblical basis for hell? And then secondly, uh, what is annihilation and why is it unbiblical? Now, this is a very common teaching, that's why I have to deal with it. Then thirdly, we will try to understand or to deal with objections to the doctrine of hell. I told you that uh, in the last Reformation conference in Mumias, I was asked to speak about hell. The, the, the question was, uh, whatever happened to hell, preaching eternal judgment. You can, you can call that, up, uh, that message up and uh, listen to it. Some, some brethren there told me they were greatly helped by that message. So that, that would not be my approach in this, uh, in dealing with this subject today. Uh, if you want to hear a preaching on hell, you can go there. Another sermon you could look up out for is um, Jonathan Edwin's uh, well-known sermon, Sinners in the Hands of uh, Angry God. So we'll deal both with the the biblical basis, then we will seek to understand annihilation and show that to be unbiblical, and then uh, thirdly and finally I'll deal with objections. There is this text we read last Sunday on, it, uh, on um, uh, final judgment in Matthew chapter 25. Again, you realize this is the Lord himself speaking so explicitly out the last things. If you look at verse 30 of uh, Matthew 25, we are, last week read verse 1 through 46. 
So let's begin at verse 30. This is what he says. Uh, this is just before speaking about the final judgment. And he's talking about um, the, the parable of the talents. And there is this worthless servant who did not do anything with his, with his talent. And so he says in verse 30, what the king says should happen to this unproductive servant. He says, and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh, excuse me. Isn't there a, wasn't there supposed to be a PowerPoint here? Who was dealing with that? So, this man is supposed to be cast into this place of outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. What does that verse tell us? At least pick up a few things that the, the, the verse uh, tells us about hell. Yes. What does it tell us about hell? Hey, are you looking at your Bibles? What does it say? Sorry? Okay, there is, um, there is weeping. There is, what else? There is gnashing of teeth. What would you call that? In one word. There is torment or there is suffering. It's a place of, of suffering. There is nothing good at all in this place. There is nothing to be, uh, to be attracted to. You know, this is not like the Dodora dumping site where, you know, greedy people are ever trying to grab. There is nothing worthy, any value whatsoever in hell. It's a place of suffering and there is darkness, there is weeping, there is gnashing of teeth. I mean, even if you are not suffering with them, you don't want to be where these people are. But then you notice that this is a, a place. I mean, the Bible does say that quite clearly. It's a place. In that place, it says, so it's a place of eternal punishment. Later on in verse 41 and 46, the Lord added, uh, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels, verse 46, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So here is a place of suffering. Here is a place of eternal punishment. Here is a cast place. You know, this is, this is not a place to want to go to. Um, why is it called a cast place? Because you see, in hell, the curse of Adam has not been lifted. Those people who would be in hell, Adam's curse is still upon them. Because there is only one who lifts up or who takes away the curse of Adam. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Who the Bible says he redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He became a curse for us. It's a place that is cursed. And then it's a place of eternal fire. From those two verses. This means that this is a, a place of endless punishment by fire. 
since it is eternal in time and quality. Now, when you read that word eternal, eternal life or eternal uh, punishment, don't just look at it in terms of the, of the time. It's not just about the time. Uh, it's also about the quality of what is being experienced. It is the very highest it can be and for the longest duration there could possibly be. So this is a place of all the horrors of the curse of death, all the horrors of fire. And I say that about the, the it's, it's both time and quality because you see there is the parallel between eternal life and eternal punishment to show that both, both states will be not only without end, not only with, uh, but also with the quality of that eternality, but on the opposite sides. It's a place where unbelievers will be punished along with the devil and all the fallen ages. Think about that. Think about uh, a human being being put in the same condition with the devil who has been at lunch opposing God with his demons. So this is not a place to only punish the body, the, even, so, even though it will have been resurrected, so to speak, resurrection unto death, but also it's a place where a spirit or a soul would also experience the pain and the suffering. The anguish is not just of the, of the body, but also of the, um, of, of the spirit. And that's why then the devil uh, and, and the ages, the fallen ages that are spiritual beings also experience the horrors of this place. So when the Lord specifically taught about hell, this is the way he speaks about it. It's a, it's a place of eternal punishment. It's a place of suffering where there is darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a cursed place. It's a place of eternal fire. You don't want to be there. And this then confirms that hell is a place with bo both undying worms and unquenched fire for the torment of the wicked. Because they rejected that which is truly life, Jesus Christ the righteous. Well, then Revelation 14, Revelation 14, verse 9 to 11 another description of eternal punishment which is very very explicit and vivid look at verse 9 and another angel a third followed them saying with a loud voice if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives the mark on his forehead and on his hand he also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshippers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Clearly, the eternal punishment is conscience for sinners. They will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. The smoke of the torment goes forever and ever, 
and they have no rest day and night. And listen to John again in, in chapter 19 of Revelation verse 3. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes out, goes up forever and ever. Look at chapter 20, verse 10. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. This speaks of endless conscience suffering. You don't want to be there. That's a biblical basis for it. I, I mean, I can go on and on, but I think the point is made. This is not a place you want to be. Okay, so then we come to a false teaching on hell. Um, have you heard of, uh, well, I think some of you may even have been uh, members of some, some of these churches. Church of God, okay? Uh, and there's a particular sect of the Church of God called Seventh-day Salem Conference. This is where the Church of God especially espoused the doctrine of annihilation. Seventh-day Adventists and all Millerite Adventists and Jehovah's Witnesses, they've denied eternal conscience punishment of unbelievers. And in case you're thinking that this is, this is a, a problem of the cult, some evangelical men have more recently also began denying this doctrine of hell as a place of eternal torment. Philip, he used John Stott, he died recently, he was a very good man. I, I read many of his commentaries. David L. Edwins, Michael Green, and you've heard of uh, Harold Camping. He also died not so long ago. And by the way, Pastor Joe Jakovich, my friend, worked with Harold Camping. But no, I'm not in any way saying that uh, Pastor Joe would espouse that kind of a false teaching. I'm only saying that uh, he, he worked for Harold Camping as his, Harold Camping was his boss. Uh, I think it's called a family radio. That's, it's still running. Thankfully, family radio now does preach the gospel. Um, I know the senior man there. But you have this man, for whatever reason, Deciding that, forget what the Bible says, we shall not preach hell as a place of eternal suffering. It's a, it's a place where there is annihilation. So they teach an aspect of annihilation in one variation or another. Believe it or not, the Church of England... What is called, they have uh, a commission, they call Doctrine Commission, reported in 1995 that hell may be a state of total non-being. Mark that word, total non-being. Not, in case you miss it, not eternal torment. They did not want that. So then no wonder that John Stott, who was himself an Anglican man, rejected it. So what is annihilation? Annihilation is the teaching that after the wicked are judged and delivered for punishment, they will suffer consciously for a period. And then God will annihilate them, meaning they will no longer exist. They will cease to exist. Have you had that teaching? Okay. Annihilation. Now, arguments for annihilation are based on various passages, and we have to look at those passages as we denounce it. 
And please, as you meet up with people, uh, with, you know, people who profess to be believers and they hold to false doctrine and they pull out a verse from the scriptures and they tell you, you see, the Bible does teach annihilation because this verse teaches it. Well, your tendency would be to say, well, but this other verse does not teach it, isn't it? Now, please don't handle the Bible like that. Because they pull a passage, you pull yours. And where does that leave you? So you're both right then, because you're both proving your position from the scriptures. And it's a matter of who is the loudest and, or who is the most eloquent or whatever else. So what you do when they pull out a passage from the Bible is to try to deal with their teaching from that text. And so that's what we need to do. Turn to Philippians 3.19. Someone will read that for us. And someone else will read 1 Thessalonians 5.3. So if microphones could be passed. So um, who is that? Brother Gary, would you take Philippians 3.19? Um, and then Tezi, 1 Thessalonians 5.3. And then Rob, uh, take 2 Thessalonians 1.9. And then, Johnny, take Second Peter 3, 7. Let's just deal with those. They talk about the destruction of the wicked. Please read for us Philippians 3, 19. Philippians 3, 19. I'm reading from the New King James Version. Whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. Thank you. Tezi? First Thessalonians 3, 5, 3. 5, 3. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Thank you. Uh, Rob? First Thessalonians 5, uh, sorry, Second Thessalonians 1, 9. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Right. Eternal? Eternal destruction. Jo destruction. Thank you. John, First uh, Peter 3, 7. So, sorry, Second Peter 3, 7. Um, Second Peter 3, 7. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction. Of the ungodly. Thank you. So it talks about the destruction of the weekend. But Second um, uh, Thessalonians 1.9 calls it eternal destruction. These passages do not suggest a complete extinction or ceasing to exist. But it's a way of referring to the harmful, destructive effects of final judgment on the wicked. Let me explain. If you look at, uh, 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 if you look at uh, Philippians 3.19 and 2 Peter 3.7, the word used there is apaleia in Greek. Now, if you go to Matthew 26, verse 8, that word is used. That word is used, the same, same word, translated destruction in one place, but in Matthew 26, verse 8, it is translated, who is there? What is it translated? Waste. It's translated waste, referring to the ointment poured on the, uh, on the head of Jesus for anointing. So the question is, had the ointment ceased to exist when it landed on the hand of the Lord Jesus? No. So what does it mean then that it was 
wasted or destroyed. It means it could not be used on anyone else or it could not be sold for value having been spent on Jesus. Isn't it? So the ointment has not, had not ceased to exist. Rather, it couldn't be used for any more value. Uh, that the proponents of annihilation have asserted that the word apolloni, from, from where they uh, which is the same word, is commonly translated destroy or ruin or lost or perish. And they've said it means to completely blot out of existence or to annihilate. But the word simply means to be lost as used in three parables in Luke 15 to designate the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. The word may also mean to become useless, like the wineskin in Matthew 9, 17, where the word again is used. It may also mean to kill, as used in Matthew chapter 2, verse 13, as what Herod wanted to do to baby Jesus. For all these cases, even killing does not mean non-existent. Because when the body is dead, it decays to become some other form of matter. And the soul goes either to one place or another in the intermediate state. This therefore means that the word can never mean annihilation. Okay? So that's what you do then. When they use a passage like that, or passages like that, you need to learn to use your, your mobile apps and get hold of Strong's Concordance. Call out those verses that use that word. And that would help you to know how else it's used elsewhere. You can see clearly uh, that it's translated waste in Matthew 26, 8 shows that that's not the understanding of the word. Now, if you go to uh, a passage like uh, First and Second Thessalonians, the word used there is olethros, which is also used in First Corinthians 5.5 5, as a reference to a man being excommunicated by delivering him to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. So the question there is, does the flesh cease to exist after a man has been excommunicated? No. So that just tells you that this is an emotional uh, teaching they come up with because they don't want to think about the horrors of hell. But the Bible paints hell as, as, it, as it does. It's a place of torment. It's a place of eternal consciousness in suffering. We cannot, we cannot do anything about that. But they cannot go to the Bible to prove that, that doctrine of annihilation. It's not in the Bible. That's what I'm trying to say. Every single place where that word is used, is, it does not have that connotation or understanding of destroying to the point where it's, it ceases to exist. So let's deal with objections then, because when they see that the Bible does not teach what they want you to, 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 to take from them, then they have objections. Uh, these are how people refuse the teaching of the Bible. They try to go to the Bible, and if, the, if they have no leg to stand on, then they bring objections. So what objections do they have? I've, I've picked six objections, and we'll briefly deal with each one of them. First of all, they say, see, hell and eternal punishment are inconsistent with the concept of a loving and a powerful God. Therefore, all men will be saved. These are universalists. 
Have you had that objection? Okay, so what do you say? On the contrary, hell shows how much God has loved sinners. John 3.16 For God so loved the world, the world of wicked men. God loved the world of sinners. What did he do? He gave his only begotten son. He gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God loved us because all being sinners deserve to go to hell because the wages of sin is death. We'll consider this later today. It's very interesting how this Sunday school lesson and uh, our preaching this morning will be tightly close together. So, uh, sinners, all sinners, deserve to go to hell. The wages of sin is death. The soul that sins shall surely die. We all deserve hell. But God being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us in Christ, he saved us. He chose us to be saved. It was all out of his great love and grace in order to show his righteousness. And if you look at Romans 9, Romans 9. And this is a passage that you need to keep open. Let's read from verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? What has he been saying? He's saying that God has chosen a people. And uh, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, verse 6. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. It's through Isaac. And then through Isaac, it's Jacob, not Esau. And so verse 13, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So you're thinking, wait, did you say that God chose Jacob over Esau, when they were still in their mother's womb, when they had neither done good or evil? Oh, isn't there an injustice on God's part? Why didn't he choose both? That's what is being dealt with there in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? It can never be, by no means. Don't even think about that. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and hurtens whomever he wills. You'll say then to me, why does, he, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you? Oh man, to answer back to God. Well, what is molded? Say to its molder, why have you made me like this? As a porter, no right over the clay or to, to make out of the same lamp one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show the, his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. What if God is hiring to show his wrath and to make known his power? 
has endured with much patience vessels of wrath, preparing for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy? This is a question. God knows what he is doing with his creation. So from this argument, it shows that unless the wicked are punished for sins, for their sins, God's power would not be known. His patience on sinners would not be appreciated. Verses of mercy would not know the riches of his glory. Therefore, hell shows how much holy and just God is at the foundation of his, of his goodness and love. Amen. That, that, that's my, my response to that objection. God is holy. He knows what he's doing. God is sovereign. And he has his, these divine prerogatives to do what he wants to do. He is the porter. We are the clay. Secondly, some other objectors will say, man was created immortal. But those who continue in sin are denied of the of their immortality. And immortality is only given on the condition that one is a believer, they say. You understand the, uh, the objection? They say, they assume that man was made immortal. And the punishment that God gives to those who would not believe is to cut off the pipe of immortality and let them be immortal and die and be extinct. So the question here is, man was created immortal? You realize that a priori. You realize that presupposition. And that's where the problem lies. You see, once you begin with the wrong presupposition, you're going to end up with the wrong conclusion. You know, it's like, you know, uh, Brother Tezi comes to me and he says, Pasi, you know, so-and-so said and did, and I'm very, very, very hot. And I go with that presupposition that there is no way Tezi can possibly be speaking anything other than the truth. He must be hot. Okay? So I go to Sister, uh, to, to Sister Nelly and, and I looked at her and I say, What have you been mistreating Brother Tezi like this? That's what we tend to do, isn't it? I don't give her any hearing whatsoever because I'm, I am fully persuaded that this is a brother in Christ, he would not be lying, he must be hurt, and, and Muslim must have hurt her. And so I go to Nelly with my guns blazing. That's not the way to do it. The Bible says, you listen to one person and you think that they are right. Until you hear the other side and you're like, oh. Now you have to, you know, you, you have to go back to the drawing point. The point I'm making is, we have to be very careful with the presuppositions that people come to us with. In, especially when you come to the doctrine, you need to ask, why is he saying that? Why is he studying on for him to come to this conclusion? So then we are asking the question, where do we have a teaching in scripture saying, that man was created with or having this, uh, this uh, attribute of immortality. Where? On the contrary, we know that man is, mo is mortal. It has been appointed for man to die. Okay. He's prone to die and then face judgment. Hebrews 9.27 Because of his sins, since every single man is sinful in his nature, and God had said, 
of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For once you eat of it, you shall surely die. And then you come to Genesis 5. And yes, Adam can go all the way to living over 900 years. 930 years, actually. And then we are told, and he, and he died. Methuselah went all the way to 969 years, but he had only 969 years. He died because the father had eaten the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and now everyone had to surely die. Look at Job 4.17. Job says very clearly that he was a mortal man. How many times did God address his own prophet, Ezekiel, as mortal man? How many times? It is until when there shall be the resurrection, when the mortal will put on the immortality, as we saw the other Sunday of the bodily resurrection from 1 uh, Corinthians 15, verse 53 and 54. So all who will be raised will live in the sense of their bodies being united with their souls and in that condition forever and ever. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. That's what the Lord said in, in John chapter 5, verse 29. So, we see that the presupposition there is wrong. The third objection. They say hell, listen to this, this is a funny one. Hell will scare people out of their wits. And some might even become believers only if to escape the fires of hell. And what do we say to that? Amen. Let them be scared and go to heaven. Do we not? Yes? Why do we not want them to be scared of hell and go to heaven? Believe in Jesus Christ. See, hell is a reality that the Bible itself presents. And if we are faithful preachers of the world council of God, we should not cease from preaching this truth as well because it is God who revealed it to us. If there are those who are scared out of their wits, I hope they are not scared out of their wits. I hope they are scared into their wits. And this leads them to a genuine repentance in Christ because they hate their sins. We say, Amen. Let them be. We are to be faithful and leave the consequences to the Lord who judges the hearts of men and who uses his word to convict men of sin. Our part is to be faithful with the word of God and leave the Lord to save however he wishes. You know, you listen to someone telling you how they became a Christian. Someone says, I became a Christian because I heard of God's love. And I lived a life where I did not have anyone who loved me. So I fled to the Lord because of his love. And then you hear someone else say, you know, that preacher hammered the doctrine of hell and you don't want to go to hell. And I heard that, the, that heaven is so sweet. That's where I wanted to go. So praise God. And some of you can identify with that. So, some will be saved because they fear hell. And others will be saved because they hate sin. And others because they've fallen in love with Christ and God. All these are some of the motivations given in scripture for salvation. God may use one. God may use both. God chooses to use some of them or all of them on a particular individual. And for us, we should be saying, I thank God for the doctrine of hell because it pushed people away from, from it. And so we have attracted on hell that we give out. We just have to be thankful to God for his saving grace using all these motivations. The fourth objection. They say punishment is penal and also retributive but also remedial. But hell has no remedial effect. 
You understand? Punishment is payment of a penalty. It's penal, right? You're paying for what you did. They also say that just uh, uh, hell is one other way that God does show his justice. Punishment is meant to avenge, doesn't it? So we say amen to that. And punishment is also meant to be remedial. Surely we punish our, our little boys and girls, our children, so that they would be better. We hope that they will not repeat their lies when we spunk them. And we hope that, that when people, when criminals are put into prison, they will not come out hardcore criminals. That they will want to go into the society and set up their, their workshop and, and, and carry on with their work. You know, doing lawful work. So it is remedial. So we say, Amen to all that. But then they say, what about hell? There is no return. Once you pass to the other side, there is a huge chasm between heaven and hell. There is no way anyone can cross. So this doesn't quite fit, they say. What do you say to that? I also would be interested to know what you would say to that. Uh, yes, Paul. I would say that I think even it's, they make a category error in the sense that punishment in hell is not the same. It's not a, a, a father punishing his children. More it's like a judge punishing a criminal. And so it's not the same kind of punishment. Right. And so when people, so the only uh, punishment which is remedial is the chastisement uh, which God gives to Christians. The other one is, is it's, it was never intended to be remedial. Right. Yeah. Yeah. When, God, uh, when, 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 uh, when a judge um, sentences a criminal to be executed, how is that remedial? I mean, to the criminal. Of course, it is remedial in the sense that you have now one less criminal. But to the criminal, poor Lesana. So hell is not meant to bring any correction. It's meant to, it's meant to punish. So that those under it will be punished forever. It is after... Final judgment. You have to remember the last class. It's after the final judgment. So, let me quote Robert Addison, because I think he captures it so well. He, say, he says, um, um, such punishment, therefore, must be penalty due, due to their sins, else it were unrighteous to impose it. If then the lost are ultimately to be saved, it must be either because they shall have satisfied the penalty or, or else through redemption. That is because Christ has borne that penalty for them. But if sinners can be saved by satisfying divine justice and enduring the penalty due to sin, Christ need not to have died. It is not, I repeat, the providential or uh, uh, it, is, it is not the providential discipline but the penal consequences of sin, which follow the judgment. And the wages of sin is death. Objection number five is eternal judgment is unfair because it seems like a disproportion between temporary sin and eternal punishment. You know, you see, you just lied. Say the lie within, a, within three minutes, three seconds. And then you're punished for hell? Ay, ay, ay. That's what they're saying. Uh, again, remember, what is the presupposition there? That we understand the extent of wickedness of any given sin. Do we? 
We do not know the extent of evil committed when sin, when we sin, when men sin against God. When men break God's law, do we know the extent of the grief or the repercussion even upon the universe, live alone upon God? We may view the nature of sin rightly as we sin if we estimate its guilt by seeing the sacrifice of sin appointed. What is it? What is the sacrifice for sin appointed? Who bears the whole for Lord? It is the Lord, God's appointed. It is the infinite sacrifice of Christ. Think about that. It is Jesus Christ, God-man, who is appointed by God to bear the awful load of sin for his elect. David Kingdom, man that I really love reading, uh, you, you would find his writings especially on uh, Reformation, um, oh dear, what is it called? I've forgotten the name of the magazine now. Anyway, David Kingdom, Kingdom writes, and he says, Sin against the Creator is heinous to the degree utterly beyond our sin warped imagination. Sin against the Creator is heinous to the degree utterly beyond our sin warped imaginations, ability to conceive of. Who would have the temerity to suggest to God what the punishment, uh, the punishment should be for sin? Does the short punishment suggested by the annihilationist satisfy the justice of God? Yeah. And finally, they also say that the fact that the continuing presence of evil creatures in God's universe will, utterly, uh, will eternally mirror the perfection of a universe that God created to reflect his glory. They are saying God should not have a dark closet somewhere in his universe, knowing that there is this plot in some place. Yes, it's locked. It's permanently sealed. They cannot come out to where we are enjoying life. You know, and, and then we would be able to carry on. It's, it's a kind of a thing. Uh, can you imagine you've been invited by your friend to their birthday party and... Um, you're enjoying yourselves, but they have this dog which is ever barking and, and, and just destroying the whole mood. You cannot listen to the music. You cannot, you cannot enjoy anything because it's barking and barking. And now they, they go and lock it up in some kennel and it's still getting out its mouth and barking and barking. It's not going to be very enjoyable, is it? I think that's what they have in mind. When God punishes evil and triumphs over it, the glory of his justice, the beauty of his righteousness, and the power to triumph of all opposition will be seen as already shown in Romans chapter 9. Verse 17, verse 22 through 24. And so the depth of the riches of God's mercy will also then be revealed for all the redeemed sinners will recognize that they too deserve such punishment from God and have avoided it only by God's grace through Jesus Christ. No objection against God's word will stand before the word of God or before the judgment seat of Christ. All human objections demonstrate their sinfulness in arguing with God and his word. So instead of believing his word, People object, and they object, and they object, and they object. And they don't realize that they are studying on sinking sand. Because all other ground apart from Christ, who is the rock, is sinking sand. So please, we have to learn to take God's threats seriously. When God threatens that the wages of sin is death, we must not say, well, it may not be death. You know, that's how children sometimes, you tell them, 
Don't do that, I will spank you. And they say, ma'am, they don't believe that you will spank them. Maybe you've been telling them you'll spank them for a long time, but you haven't been doing it. God is not like that. He doesn't issue empty threats. When he says hell is eternal, then hell is eternal. You can complain about God, but God's word stands. Bearing this seal that God knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. I don't have the time to conclude this matter. I think I'll leave it that way. Yeah, I have to. It's already nine minutes past ten. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much that for the most of us here, you've spared us from the horrors of hell. We shall not be condemned, for there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so, Lord, we ask that uh, your name may be forever magnified in our lives, that we will hate sin, and we will even hate garments stained with sin, and we will depart from iniquity. Dear Lord, we ask for your grace today and days to come that we will not offend such a loving God. Lord, we see who bears the awful load of sin for us. It is Christ, the Lord's anointed God-man, who being the eternal Son of God, he became man and he, he so was and is and shall be forever for us. A man, there is a real man with wounds gaping wide at your majesty on high and he intercedes for us and he's given us your spirit who helps us in our weaknesses. Oh, receive all glory, Lord. Help us, Lord, that uh, we would be more motivated to bring the gospel to your people to our relatives, to our friends, to our neighbors, to our acquaintances, for we know it's only the one who calls upon the name of the Lord who will be saved. But how can they call upon the one whom they've not heard? And how can they hear unless someone preaches to them? Oh Lord, how can they believe without the gospel? And who should preach the gospel except ourselves? Help us, Lord, that when we see the horrors of hell that are upon sinners, we would be quick to pass on that gospel tract, to share that link, to spread the honors of Christ wherever we are, and all this to the glory of your name, in whose name we pray. Amen.